Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I started looking into, you know, the history of of positive thinking, the law of attraction, all of that. And it's it's really woven into the fabric of what we believe as Americans, right? It's in our constitution, the right to the pursuit of happiness. And I think when you look back at the history of religion, um, trying to integrate people into the workforce early on, you see all of these recurring examples of God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy and rich. You know, we're, we're constantly told that happiness is the highest value that we can achieve, right? You hear these quotes like, happy people are the best people. And I think for so many people, that is their goal, right? I hear people come to therapy saying, I just want to be happy. And they have no idea what that even really means, that it's become a, it's become an absolute cultural obsession at this point. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Whitney, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I found out about your work because I stumbled up on your book uh, in a bookstore, Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. And as somebody who loves this idea of no bullshit self-improvement and considers the greatest compliment we've ever received in an iTunes review, no feel-good fluff, I thought, yeah, I have to talk to you. Uh, but before we get into the book, uh, given that I kind of see you as a social scientist, I wanted to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on what you ended up doing with your life and your career? Oh, gosh, interesting. I, when I think about like social group, um, I went to a small high school. I think my graduating class had like 120 kids. Mm -hmm. So it didn't really feel like there were a ton of groups per se. Um, but I was a cheerleader in high school. So I was always at like football games, things like that. I, I think I was pretty outgoing. Um, I remember talking to most people, you know, that I, that I went to school with. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there were really like groups at my high school. Yeah. 
Well, it, you know, I always find that interesting because I've had a handful of guests who have been in kind of the same situation. And I'm just like, it, it's funny because in my mind, I just had this image of, wow, somebody who's a high school cheerleader wrote a book called Toxic Positivity. <laughs> that um, is funny, like, yeah. The cognitive dissonance of that. I'm like, okay, I can only imagine <laughs> what people think. But the one thing I wonder about that is when you don't have that sort of typical hierarchical social structure, like what does that teach you about sort of navigating relationships in the world that maybe the typical high school student doesn't experience per se? Yeah, I mean, you know, what was interesting about my high school is that it was small. It was a private school. It was predominantly, you know, people who came from privileged backgrounds, I would say. And it was, but it was quite diverse, like mm -hmm. ethnically and racially, I think. So I, I think I went out into the world feeling a little bit sheltered. Um, I grew up in Clearwater, Florida. It's not really like a big city or anything like that. And I felt a desire to really like get out of my state and explore the world more. Um, just because I felt like I hadn't been exposed to that much. Uh, up to the age of 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think that one of the, the key words that stood out to me that you mentioned is privilege, which I think it, it, so often, like I think about the conversations I have on this show and, you know, the entire genre of the self-help industry. And I'm like, wow, so much of these, so much of the messaging in almost all of this is targeted towards people who are fairly privileged or come from relatively privileged circumstances. And I feel like that's so glaringly overlooked in the way that we talk about all of this. It's so true. And I've had this issue when I've gone on, you know, a lot of podcasts that I think are targeted towards that demographic where the advice is good if you have, you know, a nice house and a job and a roof over your head and all of that. Then I think like positive thinking or a lot of this self-improvement rhetoric that we hear, it feels pretty good, right? Because you have all your other needs met. Um, but for people who uh -huh. have gone through a lot of hardship in life, which is, I think, something that I did experience in a different way throughout high school. You know, I had um, family members who were very ill. I had, you know, I dealt with a lot of setbacks in that way. And that was really my first exposure to like, oh, there, there are a lot of different types of privilege. Right. And they overlap and they coincide. But a lot of the advice that we hear, it doesn't it doesn't fit most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get we'll get into that. But talk me through the trajectory that has sort of led you to doing the work that you do and led to this perspective, because I, I that's like I said, I mean, it was one of the most refreshing perspectives I'd seen. And, you know, of course, I've had other guests who kind of have challenged a lot of this. And, you know, we'll we'll talk about that. Talk me through the trajectory that led you to this view on all of this. Yeah, um, I think I mentioned that, you know, a, a couple of my family members dealt with really significant health challenges um, throughout like my youth and, and as I got older. And that was when I started to kind of learn the unpredictability of the world and how difficult things can become. And, and I think within the health field, you hear a lot of this, like everything happens for a reason. You just have to have a positive attitude. And I was very frustrated by that. I remember feeling very frustrated by that at a young age. Um, but I, I decided to become a therapist really like on a whim. I, I had like a useless degree in college and was like, Oh, I think I'll go to grad school. I always wanted to help people or listen to people in some way. And 
I went to grad school and then this became my career, you know, right, right out of grad school. And I was very annoyed by a lot of the stuff I was taught in grad school, how heavy the focus was on thoughts and changing your thinking. And, you know, all that stuff is important, but there's a lot of other stuff that we have to deal with, I think, before we get to that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that one thing I wonder about uh, as a therapist, like how you see this differ across cultures, and I'll, I'll give you a bit more context. So I was 36 when I landed in a therapist's office for the first time after a, a bad breakup that just kind of made a mess of my head. Because, you know, I grew up in a culture where anything mental health related is stigmatized. But when it comes to your sort of perspective on sort of this excessive positive thinking, like how does how have you seen it differ across cultures, like based on sort of the experiences you've had as a therapist with your patients or people that you've talked to? Yeah, culture plays a huge role. I think just for context, you know, I I practiced the majority of my career in Miami, Florida. Um, my mom is Cuban and I worked with mainly a Hispanic population in Miami and therapy is still very stigmatized, you know, within that population and and in others, like you mentioned, you know, being 36, being the first time you're in a therapist's office, that's very different than some people whose parents had them in therapy at like five, right. you know? And it's interesting. I think this idea of um, positivity and self-improvement has largely been believed to be like a very American thing. And people say that about therapy too, like, oh, that's like a white people thing. You know, you hear these comments. And I'm noticing that it's starting to spread like around the globe that now I think it's more generational than it is cultural in a lot of ways. Like you see young people in a variety of cultures really starting to question and, and try to uncover their emotions and how they want to be in the world in, in a much bigger way than mm -hmm. their parents or their grandparents did. Yeah. Well, I, I know from having read your about page that you are also a parent. So I have two questions for you. And this is something I'm always curious about with people who have either had parents who are therapists or, or therapists who have kids. Are you immune to all the bullshit that all the other parents have to deal with, like teenagers who are assholes um, or <laughs> kids who are a pain in the ass at various moments? Like, how do you distinguish between being a mom and being a therapist? Like, you have to turn how do you turn off the therapist? Because I've had people, yeah, you know, I've asked people, it's like, do you ever just feel like saying to your mom, stop being my therapist and start being my mom? <laughs> you know, it's funny that I actually find that my family members like want me to inhabit the role of therapist maybe more than I want to. <laughs> you know, I'm the one that's like, oh, I'm off the clock. I don't want to like, I don't have that hat on. Now, my son is two, so he doesn't really have the ability yet to to tell me those things. Um but I do find myself being much more relaxed as a parent than I expected to be just because I feel like I did so much work on myself before I decided to have a child that I mm -hmm. feel pretty like secure in the decisions I'm making. And then if my child decides in 10 years, you know, hey, mom, I didn't like that. I feel like I have the skills to be able to be reflective and talk that out with him. Yeah, well, it's funny because uh, I remember when I had my friend Sarah Peck here and I was asking her about parenting because I'm not a parent. I have a, a one-year-old nephew and I'm kind of watching how quickly he's evolving and it's really funny to watch. But um, she said parenting is a giant shit show. She said, basically, you do whatever you can and your job is to tell this kid, hey, kid, we're going to do our best, but we're going to screw you up. And your job is to go to therapy and fix all of it when you grow up. <laughs>
<laughs> exactly. I mean, I think it's good as a parent to be honest, like I'm going to make mistakes. And that's something I talk about a lot in my work is that every parent makes mistakes. The good ones can just own up to it and admit yeah. when they've done something wrong. Well, based on your research, one of the things that I have found as a byproduct of a thousand plus interviews in the show is like, I feel like this show has been the education I should have gotten to school, but never did. Uh, and I wonder, you know, as a parent, how you think about what aspects of the kind of stuff that you talk about in your work and write about that we should be integrating into how we educate people from an early age uh, and what that specifically would look like. Oh my gosh, I think all of this should be being taught to kids from a young age, you know, how to manage your emotions, how to label them, what different feelings feel like, um, how to express those emotions, whether that's through talking or physical activity or creative outlet. I really strongly believe that we could get rid of a lot of the world's problems if we taught people from a young age how to manage their feelings. Because if you think about why some of like the, you know, biggest injustices happen in the world, a lot of it is because like we don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to say what's going on. Um, you know, we get angry and we lash out and there's all these repressed feelings. And I didn't learn about any of that stuff really until I went to grad school and yeah. decided to become a therapist. And I could see how if you didn't become a therapist, you would have never learned about any of this stuff. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, mine, for me, it's primarily been conversations with people like you uh, right. over 10 years that have kind of taught me all of this. Um, and you know, it's funny, uh, David Brooks has a new book out. It's on my desk. I've just been reading and he talks about this. He, he, you know, it's called how to know a person. And, and one of the things he talks about most in that book over and over is that people need to be seen, feel, and you know, feel seen, you know, at heard and understood. And he said, and we don't teach that at all in our schools. That's so true. We don't at all. If anything, we teach people how to like, shut down everything they're feeling and almost like become try to become robots mm-hmm. yeah. well so what was the the sort of impetus for writing this book and getting it out into the world like what were the patterns that you were seeing that made you realize that you needed to say this um like i said i it was one of the most refreshing takes i'd seen but i i want to hear the backstory thank you um when i was in grad school. I started interning at a cancer support center and I worked mainly with people who had been diagnosed with cancer or their family members. And I noticed the immense pressure that was put on these people to be happy, to be positive. Um, there was this expectation that if you were negative, you were going to die from cancer. Like it was really overt and. In every group that we had, there were these discussions about like, well, you have to be positive. You have to look on the bright side. And it, it always just really bothered me. I was like, what a crazy pressure to put on someone that's going through such a difficult time. And I continued working with this population after I graduated. And that's when I started doing research, um, on positive thinking and especially how it pertained to, to cancer patients. And I really couldn't find very much efficacy of this, you know, line of thinking. There there were no studies showing that somebody lived longer because they had a positive attitude. There were studies, you know, that social supports helped, things like that, but nothing about positive thinking. And so when I went into private practice years later, I saw this phenomenon coming up among all my clients, not just people who had cancer, you know, just regular people that were constantly saying things like, I know I should be grateful, but I just need to be more positive, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, gosh, everybody feels this way. Um, around the same time, I was starting an Instagram account and growing that. And I noticed that the phenomenon in 
think it was around 2018, was becoming even more pervasive on social media. And I decided to start writing about it online. I made an Instagram post and I didn't have a lot of followers at the time, but that post is really like what grew my account, I think, to those first like 10,000 people. And I just kept talking about it from there. And it eventually turned into a book several years later. Well, you know, on that note, I want to bring back a clip from a conversation I had with Dan Pink, uh, where he talks a bit about this. Take a listen. We are over-indexed on positive. We, especially Americans, we are over-indexed on positive emotions. And we've been taught somehow that you should always be positive. You should always think positive. That you should banish, <laughs> that you should banish the negative, that you should always look forward and never look backward. And here's the thing. That's a really bad idea, but it comes from a decent place because what we know is that positive emotions are enormously important. You want to have positive emotions. There are benefits to optimism. There are, you want to have more positive emotions than negative emotions. But the thing is, we've gone too far in saying that you should only have positive emotions and that negative emotions, particularly our most common negative emotion, regret, is somehow dangerous, that it, that it weakens you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you're echoing that sentiment, but, you know, that was just one portion of what he was talking about there. But you've kind of expanded on that idea in quite a bit of detail. And you opened the book early on by saying positive thinking has been packaged and sold as a cure to all our problems from good vibes, only bumper stickers to scroll after scroll of pretty design Instagram affirmations to life is good T-shirts and gurus promising you're only one positive thought away from happiness. We're consistently told that looking on the bright side will help us avoid difficult experiences and feelings. And obviously, to your point, I think most of us know that that's kind of bullshit. Uh, because like, I remember even when we had Annie Duke here, she's like, let's dissect this whole law of attraction thing. And she gave us the most absurd example, which was like, okay, if you think positive about getting stuck in traffic and you decide to get on the 405 in LA at five o'clock in the evening, you're going to be stuck in traffic. The positive thinking mm -hmm. isn't going to make a damn bit of difference. You're a moron for getting on the road at that time. That doesn't make you pos a positive thinker. It makes you an idiot in my mind. So talk to me about that. Like, How do we even get here? Yeah. So I started looking into, you know, the history of, of positive thinking, the law of attraction, all of that. And it's, it's really woven into the fabric of what we believe as Americans, right? It's in our constitution, the right to the pursuit of happiness. And I think when you look back at the history of religion, um, trying to integrate people into the workforce early on, you see all of these recurring examples of God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy and rich. You know, we're, we're constantly told that happiness is the highest value that we can achieve, right? You hear these quotes like, happy people are the best people. And I think for so many people, that is their goal, right? I hear people come to therapy saying, I just want to be happy. And they have no idea what that even really means, that it's become a, it's become an absolute cultural obsession at this point. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the, the sort of core insight that I like, came to you on when I, after I finished reading your book and as I'm going through David Brooks, I was like, after just you know, all these conversations, like, wow, happiness is like a moving target that you're never going to hit. Yes, 100%. It's, it's fleeting. It's an emotion. You know, we can't sit in any emotion forever, nor, nor should we. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's talk specifically about what toxic positivity is. You say that toxic positivity is the advice that we might technically want to integrate but are incapable of synthesizing at the moment. Instead, it typically leaves us feeling silenced, judged, and misunderstood. So expand on that for me uh, mm-hmm. and give me examples. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll share some of my own, but I want to hear your take on this. I think toxic positivity as a cultural phenomenon is really this overwhelming, unrelenting pressure to be happy all the time, no matter what the circumstances are, whatever you're feeling, you're trying to get back to happiness. It's the optimal state, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something that we do to ourselves and we do to other people in a couple of ways. And so some examples of that would really just be trying to encourage someone to look on the bright side, no matter what, pushing them into positivity and happiness much too quickly. And some of the more obvious ways we do this are through statements like, everything happens for a reason, time heals all wounds, just look on the bright side, Um, you have to be positive if you want to succeed, things like that. Yeah. Well, so one tendency I've noticed when I've been going through something difficult, like I, I very distinctly remember, you know, like this breakup that made a mess in my head. I got a, on the phone with a friend and it was one of those breakups, you know, where you literally want to tell everybody until they're sick of hearing you talk about it. And then finally <laughs> you get sick of yourself talking about it. Um, but what I, I saw with that I remember very distinctly stood out to me, like I was with a friend and she was a coach. And I remember telling her, I was like, stop being my fucking coach and just listen to me whine about this breakup. I don't want to coach right now. And like, I realized that when bad things happen to good people or when bad things happen in general, like one of the cruelest things that we do is actually try to give them advice, like without any understanding of what they're going through. Like we have no sense for the context. Yes, that is the most important piece here that you're highlighting is that when we give people this like neatly packaged positive advice too quickly, it sets off alarm bells for them. Like you're describing here of like, wait, how are you giving me advice when you don't even understand what I'm going through? You haven't made any attempts to ask me questions or to get to know what I'm feeling. And we do this in really big situations. Like someone dies and you'll be like, oh, they're in a better place now. Um, Enjoy the happy memories you had with them. You know, these really well-intentioned things, but it's like, oh my gosh, you want me to just integrate that right now during the most horrible moment of my life when actually all I want is for someone to listen to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a family member go through something difficult. And I realized I was like, there's nothing I can say to this person. This is not, yes. it, it's not even my place to say something. My job is to literally just be there. That is it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're obsessed with, um, being the ones to be able to fix things for people. And that's something I am very prone to and have had to work on throughout my career a lot is like the desire to make it all better. I think that's Mm -hmm. where this comes from a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I I see this particularly with friends who are coaches. And even to your point, you said, you know, they're trying to understand and they'll go through their whole coaching shtick of like, okay, let me use my model that, you know, I do to with clients. And I'm like, I don't need you to treat me like a client right now. I need you to basically just be a friend who listens to me whine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you want you want compassion and you want to like have your pain be seen by someone else. I mean, sometimes that's all I'm doing in therapy is just looking at someone while they share the darkest thing that has happened to them and and showing them through my presence like I'm not scared of this. I'm not going to run away from it. 
I'm not going to leave you alone in this. Mm -hmm. And that's enough without me even saying anything. Yeah, I think it was Britt Frank. I don't know the exact quote, but she said, you know, the point of therapy isn't going there to fix yourself. It's to know yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, I, you know, I think that what I found to your point was like after six months, my therapist was like, you realize, I think about a month in, he's like, you realize we're having the same conversation every week. Um, and what I came to was this realization that like, no matter how much I ruminate on this event in my life and replay it over and over again, I woke up one day and I was like, holy shit, the outcome is still the same. So yeah. talk to me about, you know, sort of why we do that um, as it relates to what you say here, when you say positive thinking is often a band-aid and a bullet wound, instead of helping, it leads to emotional suppression, which is destructive to our bodies, minds, relationships, and society. Uh, because like I said, no amount of positive thinking was getting me out of this like rumination trap that I could not escape until I finally woke up one day and realized that, wait a minute, the outcome is exactly the same. So what the hell is going on there? When you're ruminating and you try to use positive thinking to get yourself out of that loop, really all you're doing is suppressing how you're feeling and stuffing it down. You're telling yourself, I shouldn't feel this way. I need to stop feeling this way. And I need to like get over it, move on and, and make things better. And I always like to point out here that like too much rumination can always be bad for you as well. You know, you don't mm. want to stay thinking, circling about a breakup for too long to the point where that starts to bring you down. We have to kind of strike this fine balance where we acknowledge where we're at in this moment and we allow ourselves to fully process it, which means like talking about it, recognizing the feelings, allowing ourselves to cry, to like move through it instead of try to shove it down and and like put it away in a box. Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, this is another thing that really struck me is that most positive thinking literature provides us with a simple, simple formula. Change your thoughts, change your life. This is so powerful because it taps into our biggest fear as humans, uncertainty. When we know we feel safe and safety is everything. So talk to me about that because I feel like I see book after book, um, blog post after blog post about, you know, like just a number and, you know, whatever outcome it is and then change your life. You know, just seven step formula to make you rich, six figures <laughs> in six months. Like, I mean, one after, I mean, I could just rattle them off one after another. And the, the like sort of big realization that I came to over the past year and a half was that almost all of this doesn't account for context. Like we are completely blind to context when we give prescriptive advice and when we take, um, which is why I jokingly kept saying I'm working on a book titled Everybody's Full of Shit, including me. Because <laughs> in certain contexts, that's true. Yeah, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. And I, I think this is what infuriates me the most about like positivity culture and the law of attraction, all that is this false promise of control over your life And this idea that if it's not working for you, it's because you're doing something wrong. And so, you know, I've seen people argue like people get in car accidents, they get cancer, they get all these things because they weren't like doing the law of attraction right, you know, and it it places the all of the responsibility on the individual and leaves out all the context which we know is is just, it's insane. It's not possible to do that. Yeah. Well, probably one of my favorite quotes from the book was when you said, with all these successful programs floating around, proposing easy to follow formulas, I wonder why we don't have more millionaires. And so <laughs> yeah. with that, you know, I, I actually pulled a clip um, from my old mentor, Greg, who, and I wanted to get your take on this because I think that, you know, it really echoes some of what you were saying. Take a listen. Now, I'm a big believer in the idea of of grit and resilience. Mm. I write about it. I talk about it. It's the thing that I'm I'm most attached to. So I'm not here to downplay those things, but I'm also not here to downplay intelligence and talent. I do believe that the reality is, is we are not all born equal. We just aren't. Mm -hmm. The idea that individuals who have high levels of IQ 
and individuals that are born with certain gifts at a level that others of us aren't born with have opportunities to overcome their environments, have greater opportunities to become, to overcome their environments. Now, that also doesn't mean that they will. Right. There are plenty of people who have those talents, have those gifts of intellect that never do. But if you're looking at the difference between what is possible between what is it, it, versus what is probable, mm. it is the probability goes up the higher your IQ and the more talented you are. So I just want to put that on the table because I hear conversation after conversation and book after book and interview after interview in this kind of new agey world that we live in, where that is just merely off the table. And in my right. mind, if it's not on the table, we're not being truthful with ourselves. So tell me, how do we get to a point where we seem to be just in complete denial of what he's talking about? I, I think a lot of this comes down to, you know, dollars and making money. And that's what's behind a lot of this belief that's being pushed forward of like, you can achieve anything that you put your mind to, and I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. And we see that happening in the business world, in psychology, in healthcare, um, where there are people who are playing on that desire in people and saying like, anybody can achieve this if they put their mind to it and follow these steps. And I talk about this in the book, you know, like the saying of you can do anything you put your mind to. And that's not true for some people, you know, particularly with the people I've worked with who have disabilities or chronic illness. This is a really dangerous form of toxic positivity to tell someone like you are your only limit, you know, and to not take into consideration the real tangible limitations of their health or their body that they might be working with. And so I, I agree with his sentiment that we have to consider each person's unique situation, their talents, their flaws, mm -hmm. um, and take all of that into consideration. We're not all starting off in, in the same place. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's the big thing I just, so like I said, find over and over, you know, as I read book after book, like particularly the ones that offer prescriptive advice. And I'm like, there is no accounting for context in any of this. Like this is not relevant to somebody who's, getting shot at and, you know, working three jobs to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a, a bit about the role of social media in all of this, because I know that you uh, kind of allude to some of this. And I, because, I, you know, I take individual notes for everything that I highlight. And I, I remember writing a note titled, these popular platitudes perpetuate a culture of po toxic positivity. And yet, I mean, our Instagram feeds are just riddled with them every day. Yeah, I think this is something that I've started to see a, a shift around over the last like, year. So it's it's gone out of fashion, at least as much. But between 2018, 2021, there was like a huge, you know, positive thinking culture on social media, especially during the pandemic, you know, encouraging people to like have a good attitude while they went through this crazy thing. And I always talk about like the, I don't, there was that video of like celebrities like singing in their house, telling everybody just to like smile and enjoy being at home during the pandemic. And that was one of the worst examples of toxic positivity on social media, you know, at this time where it's like people are really suffering and we're being told that we just need to like bootstrap our way and 
have a good attitude about it. And I think this has been perpetuated, you know, by influencers only posting the good, perfect things about their life. And social media just became this hotbed for like living vicariously through perfect, happy people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, 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 you know, like the way I describe it once is I, I say it's kind of like looking through the window of somebody's house as you're walking down the street and thinking that you know everything about them from that one glance. A hundred percent. Yeah. When you're seeing like 10 percent. So let's talk about negativity uh, and the various aspects of it. Uh, because, you know, I mean, to Dan Pink's point earlier, like you want more positive than negative emotions. You don't want to be this like eternal pessimist. Like I, I can tell you, like I, I have one of my best friends and I, he, we're like each other's yin and yang because like he will check me when I'm, you know, like too on the side of being skeptical. Um, and I will call him when I think he's being, you know, naively optimistic uh, and unrealistic. <laughs> And so, I mean, in that sense, we're a good balance for each other. But like he tends to swing, you know, way to the other side. I kind of somewhere in the middle, I think. Um, but you talk about complaining as as one place, you know, where we see quite a bit of negativity. But like I realized, you know, just from reading your book, I was like, OK, you're right. The complaining does serve a purpose. So if somebody sends me an email complaining about something related. It's a customer service issue and I can actually solve it. You know, and I don't think we think about complaining as anything positive necessarily. Yeah, I actually think most of us are like, oh, I need to stop complaining. You know, we we have like this goal to stop doing it. But complaining has a really big function in our lives. It tells us what we're upset about, what needs to change. It is what creates change in the different areas of our life. If you don't complain, identify the negative thing, nothing can happen from there. Nothing will change. And we see that, you know, in customer service, in your relationships, at work, there's all these areas where we have to be able to identify like the negative piece, make it known and then do something about it. I think where it gets to be tricky is when people don't know how to complain effectively. And so yeah. they get stuck in the loop. Talk to me about the loop. Like, what is that? And, uh, you know, as I was reading this chapter, I was thinking, I was like, how does this apply to family members in particular who are difficult? Uh, you know, <laughs> ones who you're really close to. Like, because I mean, there are things I'm sure I, I, I remember joking with my dad. I was like, I'm, you know, like when we go to my parents' house to visit from Boulder, usually at the end of two weeks, I think they're as ready for us to leave as we are ready to leave. <laughs> yeah. So when you get stuck in a complaint loop, it will feel that way, like you're trapped, you're going in circles. You just keep talking about the same thing over and over and there's no fixing it. There's no resolution. And you might not even really know where you want to go with that complaint. Now, sometimes we just want to vent. We just want to like get something off our chest. The example you just gave about like being with your family, you know, after you leave them, all of you guys might just want to talk about how annoying so and so was for 10 <laughs> minutes, you know, just to like, <laughs> Get it off your chest and then you're done with it. But if you notice that you're complaining about the same thing constantly and you're not doing anything about it, you're not making any changes, that would be a point where if, if you were my client and I was the therapist, I would be like, okay, you bring this up a lot. Like, what is the need under this? What would you like to see change? What do you wish was different? What is the feeling behind that complaint? And that's where. Complaints can be really valuable. They hold a lot of information about our inner world. 
So I'll tell you a story really. So I, I, you know, my mom is kind of OCD. She wants everything to be immaculate. Our house looks like Buckingham Palace most of the time. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know if you ever saw it. The Oatmeal actually did a hilarious cartoon about, you know, loading the dishwasher, which apparently is like a big fight between people. And I, I had no idea. But my mom is very insistent that I load the dishwasher in a particular way. And one morning, it just kind of got on my nerves and I had enough. And I remember I we went to therapy that day and the therapist literally said, look, he's like, we talk about your mom a lot. He's like, you can either keep going to battle with her, except that it's not going to change. And when I came back and I, my dad said, I told my dad that he's like, I could have saved you 50 bucks and told you that. <laughs> just just learn how to load the dishwasher like she does. Everything will get better. Yeah, but I mean, that's like, I, I think the dishwasher is a metaphor for a, sort of a, yeah. a greater idea, which is that there are just certain things that are going to drive you crazy about people who are close to you in your life and pro- probably things about you that drive them crazy that aren't going to change. Um, I'm expected to change. Like that's 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 the one ongoing theme here. But my mom's not going to change when it comes to that. <laughs> I have to learn how to load the dishwasher. Uh, yep. which to me is really not that important because I'm like, they're in the dishwasher. Nobody's sleeping in the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But these are all these little moments of like uh, power struggles, mm-hmm. you know, over over certain things that happen in families. And when we are complaining about the dishwasher, we are complaining about something else, right? Like you said, it's a sign for nobody listens to me. You're trying to control me whatever it is. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I decided that I want to have your episode be the first of the new year. So I thought it would be a perfect time to talk uh, about two things, goal setting and affirmations. Uh, Like, I feel like affirmations for the most part are just mental masturbation. Like vision boards are basically giving people an excuse to sit on their ass and stare at a piece of paper. And I'm like, do you really think that that's going to make money fall from the sky? Like, I can tell you of all the times I've made vision boards, I was like, okay, of all those things, I don't think any of them have materialized. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, talk to me about what is going on, you know, particularly at New Year's. Like, why do we kind of have this sort of crazy outlook of all these things we think we're going to be able to do? Like, you know, it's like, yeah, I'll be a millionaire by the end, even when you're making 10 grand a month. Um, like, what role does toxic positivity play in all of that? And as people are thinking about the start of the year, like how would you want them to think about it differently from the way they typically would based on all the other crap that they've read? So I think, you know, we love as humans, the ability to think about like, oh, starting fresh and endless possibilities and different options. Like that's enticing and exciting. The biggest pitfall that I see people fall into here is that they take on too much at once. They try to make too many changes in a short period of time that they are not set up to make. So I always recommend that people set goals that are achievable and realistic. And you have to get really honest with yourself about being realistic. The gym is a goal that a lot of people tend to set at the beginning of the year. And you'll have someone who has not done any movement maybe in five years saying, I'm going to go to the gym seven days a week. And that to me would be very unrealistic and setting yourself up for failure. It might be better to say, I have a goal of going to the gym one day a week. And once I can go to the gym one day a week for three weeks, I'm going to add on another day and I'm going to add on another day and try to really make sure that you're able to create momentum for yourself. Because if you set yourself up to fail and you don't achieve your goal, you'll be like, ah, well, I couldn't do it anyways. And that's usually when the goal 
fails and goes out the window, you know, by like January 10th. Yeah. Well, I remember James Clear telling a story about one of his readers um, using his atomic habits model just to like build the identity. The guy would drive to the gym, but not go in. And yeah. he did that for 30 days and then he would go in for five minutes and that guy apparently lost 100 pounds. Right, right. Exactly. That's a perfect example of that. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the industry at large. I mean, this is actually one thing that I've seen over and over. I've asked Stephen Kotler about it. Uh, Wiley McGrath, who we had here, had a really great term for it. He called it the self-help hell loop. Uh, which is, you see this pattern, and I've seen this over and over again, where you know, I had kind of described this as three groups of people when it comes to self-improvement. There are the people who just go from seminar to seminar. There are the people who go to the thing, it ends up being a catalyst for change. And then there are the people who are there, but they would have gotten the result even if they weren't. And I feel like the entire industry is built on the first group of people. Mm, that's very interesting. I haven't heard that. What did he call it again? The self-help? The self-help hell loop. Yeah, that's I have to look into that. That's such an interesting it was a, way. Yeah, I, I never heard it phrased like that. And I was like, that actually is such a good way to describe it. But it's so true, right? Like, I mean, how many Tony Robbins seminars do you go to before you're like, okay, I need to go actually put this shit into action in my life. Like, you know, yep. it, that's what blows my mind is that I see this over and over. Like, I've seen people literally will have 100 podcasts that they're listening to. I'm like, wait, how are you retaining anything from 100 podcasts? Yeah. Yeah. And at some point, you know, I talk about this in the book, like I think the industry becomes um, quite like predatory on those people, oh, yeah. you know, the people that are never going to act, that are just going to keep putting money into something. And and I think those people are not going to find what they're looking for in self-help. You know, I, I almost want to be like, I, I try to tell people, you know, don't buy another book, don't buy another course, whether it's mine or someone else's. Until you figure it out, like, am I sleeping? Am I drinking enough water? Am I, you know, talking to people who support me? Like, there's all these other things in our life that we really have to work on that are mainly, you know, free to work on before I think we can integrate a lot of this other higher level stuff mm -hmm. that is being discussed in a lot of the arenas uh, of the self-help industry. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, one of the things you talked about was this idea of the difference between fulfillment and happiness. And, you know, you say that finding fulfillment requires living a value-driven life. A value-driven life is quite different from a happiness-driven life. In a happiness-driven life, we're focused on maintaining a good mood, seeking out only positive and happy experiences and achieving happiness as the ultimate goal. A value-driven life allows you to prioritize what's important to you and find a path to get there. And I think you alluded to this idea of, you know, you know something's wrong. Like, I don't remember the exact quote. I, I, have, I have so many of them from your book here, but um, about, oh, here it is. You know, here are a few, a few key signs that healing or self-improvement is negatively impacting someone, constantly finding new things to improve or fix, thinking there is something wrong with you. And sometimes I kind of feel like, wait a minute, am I reading all these books partially because it's my job or am I partially also doing exactly what you say? Like, all your daily activities are revolved around improving yourself in some way. You know? mm -hmm. And I feel like in some way, I kind of think I have friends who are like, who actually live like that. Yeah, I think we all know someone like that, that just it's it kind of feels like it's never going to be enough or mm -hmm. never going to be good enough. There's always this next place of improvement to get there. And when I work with people like that, I I wonder like how scary it would be for them to stop and to slow down and to just be with themselves. And I think a lot of them, they can't. 
that it sounds terrifying to them. That sounds terrifying to me, to be honest. <laughs> like, you know, the, the idea of just sitting and doing nothing is that's very, very difficult for me. Like, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, I, I've seen that in myself, like what you're talking about, where it's like, okay. And my, my friend actually called me out on it. And he's kind of in this camp too. Like he does yoga, he eats healthy. Like basically we told him like, we're done accommodating your bullshit dietary needs. We don't want to eat grass for dinner so you can eat on your own. <laughs> like I'm 45 now, so I'm over accommodating you. Um, but the funny thing is like, he called me out on this. He said, you know, I know you when you don't get out of the house, he's like, or you don't go and socialize. He's like, your default is that you'll work. And mm -hmm. that was largely a byproduct of the pandemic because before that I was like snowboarding three times a week. And I realized it was like, I got trapped into this basement. And one of my friends, one of the other roommate who lived with me, we were about to resign the lease and he was leaving too. He said, Trini, I know you, if you resign this lease, you're going to sit in this basement like a hermit all summer and read. And fortunately I didn't end up going to Brazil with him. But it, like, I realized like, I think we all have those tendencies, particularly because if you look at our peer group, like yours and mine, right? We're both published authors. Think about the people that, our, our reference group, like Seth Godin, Ryan Holiday, especially if you're in that Penguin portfolio where I am, it's like, wow, these are all the people who are in this imprint. <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I am a therapist who talks about these things and that it happens to me too. Like I am an extreme overachiever, workaholic, like it, that is what comes naturally to me, you know, just mm -hmm. like you're saying, it's, it's something I have to really acknowledge and like focus on and deliberately decide to like not be that way. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that more. How do you, so how do you, how do you balance that with ambition? Like how do you deliberately not decide to be that way, but also not become just a lazy person who sits on your couch eating potato chips? Because <laughs> I think that's the fear too. for people like me is that I'll just end up, you know, sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. Which is so funny because that's probably so far away from like who you are at your core. Like I could be like sick and still be like, Oh, I got to do this thing today. Or, you know, I'm recording a podcast episode when I'm like, should be in bed, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is that I think it, it's such like an irrational fear probably for people who feel that way. But for me, it's been all about like scheduling my life in a way that I know like this is time for work and this is time to be a mom and this is time to socialize. And like I have these blocks where nothing is really able to bleed in to the other. And that's been one of the benefits of parenthood is like I I can't work when I'm with my kid. You know, like mm -hmm. I have to be <laughs> intentional about that. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 you know, I, I told you I have a one-year-old nephew and he's, uh, I mean, you have a son, so you probably know this. Boys like to climb into everything. Boys apparently oh, yeah. have a ridiculously high risk tolerance and no concept of rec what recklessness is, at least from what I've observed in my nephew. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like any household item is dangerous and you're just like, and I, I, I realized my sister left him with us for three days because she went to uh, Mexico for a wedding. And I remember when she came back to pick him up that night after my parents left, I looked at him like, is it just me or are you guys completely exhausted? Yeah. Uh, because you're right. It's a, I, I was like, you literally cannot take your eyes off of him for mm -hmm. even a you minute. You can't. You can't. Or something bad will happen. So it's really like my brain now is like, this is the work time. This is the parenting time. And it, it helps a yeah. lot. Wow. Well, I feel like I could talk to you about this all day. I mean, there's so much depth to what you've written about. So, uh, you know, as uh, you know, you've kind of given people some stuff to think about, like, 
what are the things that people should sort of have, um, you know, like be aware of as they get bombarded with, you know, things for New Year's and stuff about changing their life in the New Year? Because I'm guessing they'll see their inbox just littered with offerings for online courses and new books and all sorts of shit. What should they be, you know, sort of like cautiously aware of? Yeah, there was a question that I believe her name is Sonia Renee Taylor said at a talk that she did that's who is profiting off of my insecurity here? And that's a question I always like to come back to whenever I see any marketing like that, that is trying to convince me I need to change something about myself, trying to inspire urgency um, is like, is this something I really need to change about myself? Is somebody going to profit off of me feeling like this is a problem with me? And just investigating like where is that need and that desire coming from and making sure that it's truly genuine to you, you know, and not something you started feeling because of of someone else. Beautiful. I love it. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh gosh. I don't know. That's a hard one. I have to think about like, I don't even know if I'm, you can cut this out if you want, but I think I have to get clear on what my definition of unmistakable is. Not able to be mistaken for anything else. So some something that is very unique. Yeah, that's a good way. I mean, when you, when you write a book called Unmistakable, you have to actually define it, as I learned. Yes. Uh, so I define it, I mean, you kind of alluded to it, but I define it as something so distinctive that nobody else could do it but you. To me, like bringing this back full circle, you know, to the book, it would be living authentically to yourself, living in alignment with your values and really being confident in, in all of your decisions. Awesome. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights, your stories, and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your book, your work, and everything else? Yes, you can find me on all social media platforms at Sit With Wit. I also run an online community for adult family members working on their family relationships. It's called Calling Home, and you can find that at callinghome.co. Otherwise, you can get Toxic Positivity anywhere books are sold. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. And download your free copy.